I'm Alex Shaw. I'm Sharon Shaw. And, and welcome, welcome to, to School of Movies. <laughs> Avatar. You Jake Sully? I'd like to talk to you about a fresh start on a new world. You'd be making a difference. I became a Marine for the hardship. I told myself I can pass any test a man can pass. All I ever wanted was a single thing worth fighting for. Ladies and gentlemen, you are not in Kansas anymore. You are on Pandora. You should see your faces. We have an indigenous population called the Na'vi. They are very hard to kill. This is why we're here. Because this little gray rock sells for 20 million a kilo. Their village happens to be resting on the richest deposit and they need to relocate. Those savages are threatening our whole operation. We're on the brink of war and you're supposed to be finding a diplomatic solution. The concept is to drive these remotely controlled bodies called avatars. They're grown from human DNA mixed with DNA of the natives. Marine in an avatar body. That's a potent mix. You get me what I need, I'll see to it you get your legs, babe. Your real legs. Hell yeah, sir. Looks like you. This is your avatar. Just relax and let your mind go blank. It shouldn't be hard for you. I want you to gain their trust. You should not be here. Go back. All this is your fault. I need your help.
Welcome to the beginning of the end of our James Cameron season. At the time of recording, Jim is 67 years old, and after a 12-year wait since he made Avatar in 2009, we are looking at an optimistic seven more years until 2028 and four more films spent on and in Pandora with the four sequels currently in production. I was going to say pre-production, but like they've shot the first one from the sounds of it, to at least they're, so, yes. they're putting the finishing touches to it. That's going to take another year, but that's where we are right now. In short language, this means that he will be in his mid to late 70s once this fifth Avatar film emerges. Stanley Kubrick was 70 years old when he died, as Eyes Wide Shut was in post-production, still making and planning future films like AI. Yeah, he died in March 99, and Eyes Wide Shut was released in theatres in July of 99. At 74, Steven Spielberg is about to release his interpretation of West Side Story, and at 57, our spring chicken Guillermo del Toro is about to release Nightmare Alley, his 11th directed picture. There is a commonality to the creative determination unto death of the directors that we have covered in specialized seasons over the past few years. But Cameron is unique in that from the mid-1990s until he started in on Avatar, in the mid-2000s, he was all about the Titanic spending his life under the sea. But after that, he took a love of the natural world and a fascination with wildlife that had not previously surfaced in his steely aesthetic, but he claims has been there since the beginning. And he immersed himself in developing a singular series for the third act of his life. I think you could possibly interpret his early work as a fascination with the things that destroyed the natural world, including people. The way that Tolkien wrote about the industrialization. Yeah. But until Avatar 2 finally emerges after a long, long, long hiatus, exacerbated by the pandemic, all any of us have to assess this world is the original 2009 film. Sharon and I never saw this theatrically in 3D, we saw it in 2D, rendering us unable to comment on a personal level regarding the major selling point of how this was conveyed to the highest paying cinema crowds to date. Not the most people, but if you remember, you have to add a buck to every bum on a seat. And astonishingly, Avatar made more, almost twice as much as everything else. Indeed. I mean, arguably, some people say that the price of the 3D glasses is not included. I don't know how they work out the sums in that case then. And you also have to take inflation into account as mm. well. Yeah. But there was a fairly petulant time when the makers of uh, Endgame were going up against Avatar in a kind of, we'll beat you way. Mm -hmm. And then Disney went, well, we'll see about that, and re-released it in China. Yeah. Well, I mean, ultimately, if Disney owns both, it's kind of neither here nor there. It really isn't. They're competing with themselves at this point. Yeah. But Sharon and I were, back then, plenty immersed into the ecosystem of the planet Pandora. And watching it a few nights ago on an OLED screen, in a darkened living room with Philips Ambilight throwing the colors on screen back up onto the surrounding wall, that's something nifty our TV can do, Avatar remains a jaw-dropping experience of visuals and sound. 
and the version we watched was the longest cut on the three disc collector's edition Blu-ray set. This one added 16 additional minutes, though notably there was still an hour of deleted scenes on the second disc with unfinished FX that hint at even longer potential cuts that could come out in future for the betterment or diluting of what Avatar conveys to us, the audience. Like, I feel like if they, if they were, we're re-releasing it with an hour of extra footage. I mean, it would cost less than a Snyder Cut. It would. It would cost less than Cavill's mustache, I think, just it to complete all those extras. <laughs> I think you might be right. But good luck getting the cinemas to play it four and a half hours long. I mean, if anything could command that, I think it's this. And also, they really, really need to resell Pandora to everyone, especially a whole generation who were either not born or not Compass Mentis when it emerged in 2009. Willow was one year old. Has no idea what it was like to see in the cinema with the big glasses. But I think the most significant aspect of the longer cut is that we begin on Earth this time, and we get some crucial characterization for our protagonist, Jake Sulky. Jake Sulky, thank you, spell checker. <laughs> Jake was, Sulky! Was that seriously spell check? They switched it back around. I typed in Sully. Okay. <sighs> it's my iPad that done it. Okay, so Jake Sulky. I mean, it's appropriate. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's why I thought you'd done it on purpose. Sam Worthington kind of came out of nowhere in the late 2000s, was in loads of high-profile movies for about a year, and then disappeared. Yeah, because it's kind of amazing. Oh, hang on a minute, he's really not very good. Is that it? <laughs> I think so. Okay, well, he's, you know, right. he was in Terminator Salvation. I feel like Jim Cameron put in a good word for him because he'd already been cast yeah. in Avatar, yeah, which was coming out the year that's after. To be true, it it is harsh to say that he's not very good, but I think probably it would be more accurate to say he's not very versatile. He does one type of character, and he does it to a, a competent level, but he doesn't really... I, I've never seen him go outside that kind of Johnny Template, I'm the tough guy hero. Imagine if he'd been cast as Captain America, and Chris Evans had had Jake Sulky. Chris Hemsworth? I mean... You're asking me to replace Chris, Chris, some of the funniest Chris's and Chris Pine? best actors with somebody else. What about Chris Pratt? Chris Pratt as Jake Sulky. But that means we get Sam Worthington as... Star-Lord? And mm. Emmett in the Lego movie. Oh no, who said that? That's <laughs> That doesn't have to be the rule. <laughs> Suddenly, Chris Pratt's playing Jacob Goodboy, or whatever his fucking name is, in Terminator Salivation. And Sam Worthington's marrying Schwarzenegger's yeah. daughter. And that Pratt is flying around on a Pegasi in Clash of the Titans 2 and 3. This is all very confusing. And Wrath of the Titans, where if he has If Hollywood will insist on having lots of interchangeable blondes. Yeah. Okay, so the problem here is, uh, for, for, for people who want more from a film, is that... Uh, Sam Worthington has a very symmetrical, very Johnny Template, square-jawed, chiseled features face and a kind of a gravelly voice. He is literally every American dude watching this film. And he was clearly chosen by uh, Cameron because Cameron did not want a soft boy like he did with Titanic. He wanted to appeal to the bros. Do you think that the symmetrical face being useful for the performance capture was part of it? Yes, I do. I okay. really do. Because okay. we watched his uh, his line test and we were like, how did he get the part from this? 
He's, also, he's very quiet point, and subdued. Mm, and he's he like, didn't seem to be putting a lot of umph into it, did he? Mm, and also at that point... He puts point, more umph in in the film. Because that was before he'd done all the... the working out and the, the mm. bulking up of at least his upper body he looked very short and skinny but 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 I, th- I feel like removing this thread was a bad idea for the theatrical version same as I, I, I feel that the removing the learning chip thread in T2 and removing the mother-daughter relationship or, or downplaying it in Aliens all of those were bad ideas I think I also feel like removing the uh, a, uh, NTIs threatening all of humanity with giant tidal waves, that removes a, the key question as to answering why they're there and what they're doing. Yeah, he has got a bit of a history of that, hasn't he? Yeah. Like, the studio or somebody on the producer's desk will say, let's take this out because we, we want to make it shorter and mm. this makes things less confusing. And he goes, you're all right then. It'd be like not having the wraparound from Titanic. Just you start True. with Rose on the Titanic. Well, I do feel like part of his nonchalance about these things getting cut out of his movies is that in his head, the version he filmed is the story. Hmm. And if other people don't necessarily get to see that full story... It's in his head. It, it, it doesn't bother hmm. him, it's in his head. One thing's for sure, it felt a little bit too long when we sat down and watched the longer version. It did, but I know where I'd cut some out of and it wasn't there. Me too, yeah. So at the beginning, what's the Earth like? It, the, it is the year 2154, and I felt immediately that that was rather optimistic to illustrate how well everyone seemed to be living. Like, it was a, a cyberpunk shithole, mm. but at the same time, it, was, it wasn't apocalyptic. It wasn't quite, but it, I got a very strong no sense. No breathing masks. Of, well, no. I got a very strong sense of this is the world of Blade Runner before they started shipping people off-world in earnest. Yeah, a new this world is... awaits you in the off-world colonies. Yeah, this, this felt Sorry, like... a new life Earth, awaits you. This felt like an Earth that is teetering on the brink of being given up on, but isn't quite there yet. Yeah. There's a, there's a heavy subtext in there, which we'll keep coming back to. But uh, in this early section, Jake is characterised as being bound to a wheelchair and feeling small and unassuming. Like, the rest of the world consistently underestimates him in a way that continues on into Pandora. Mm. And honestly, this is something that disabled people will be like, yes, fucking yes. Find it easy to ignore him. Yes. The being ignored part is, is huge. And a big part of it, which he outlines, is that in the world he lives in, the damage that he's experienced in the course of his military career, which is how he ended up in the wheelchair in the first place. And I really did get the impression that they tried to make him look like Tom Cruise in Born on the Fourth of July. Mm. But the Ron Kovic. Yeah. The 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 physical damage he's had is fixable. With with the right medical care, he could get that sorted. But because he's on military vets benefits he can't afford to have that kind of medical care and therefore he's feeling abandoned by the system on multiple levels bear in mind that uh, cameron had a brother in the military Mm -hmm. uh, so he would have uh, been able to be like hear very close anecdotal uh, scenarios where uh, the military who served alongside his brother got fucked over by their superiors and their uh, employers Uh, but also he wrote Rambo First Blood Part 2. Remember that one? The second film, which was 
a lot more jingoistic, but still ended up with uh, Stallone breaking down and just... For our country to love us as much as we love it. Uh, so that like he's already had the the suffering military man in his blood since prior to Terminator One. It's something that drives him clearly. And again, not trying to go for a soft boy this time. Jake is absolutely instrumental to a huge proportion of your audience. I feel like this time around when we watched it, we were a bit more uh, lukewarm or um, medium on the overall story he's telling and the overall message he's putting out because we know already Sharon and I know and the people you have to get through to are not us mm, that's exact that is one of the first notes that I wrote is that this is it's not quite baby's first colonialism but he is definitely not preaching to the converted here this is not for people who've already got their heads around the, the themes and messages that the film is trying to put across. It's trying to grab those people who have not reflected on this stuff before, who have ignored it so far. And that's why, and this is something we keep coming back to with Cameron, most of the strokes that are in it are big and bold and broad and mm. brash. He's not subtle. He is not a subtle filmmaker. Mm. He wears everything on his sleeve and sometimes he goes about, in this case of this, he, everything practically explains itself, giving Sharon and I a lot less to do. Indeed. Got him with my subtle plan. I can't see any subtle plan. Well, Rick, you wouldn't see a subtle plan if it painted itself purple and danced naked on top of a harpsichord, singing, subtle plans are here again. <laughs> Sometimes it really, really works for me. Sometimes not so much. And I think a lot of it has to do with how the actors interpret the material he gives them. And it, you, in, in cases where this approach has really gelled for me, it's because there's another layer of filter on it from the actors and the, the performances that they put out that hones that broad brushstroke and kind of funnels it into a here's a more subtle interpretation and a more personal interpretation. Yeah. One of the aspects of the film that, again, got downplayed heavily because they didn't put the uh, intro in there, um, same as the they downplayed the Terminator as a learning machine in T2, even though that's still there when he's, uh, like, when he smiles and says, well, no problemo, and just sort of repeats things that John said, that's because his learning chip is on, even if you're just watching the original theatrical cut. But for Jake, what got excised here was his relationship with Tommy, his brother, who is supposed to be in the Avatar program. Uh, if you uh, watch the uh, extended cut, he gets into a fight in a bar because he's trying to defend uh, a lady. But it's, it's practically that bit in Forrest Gump where uh, Forrest sees someone being shitty to Jenny and lunges in and starts beating the crap out of him. And Jenny's like, no, Forrest, no, 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 please don't hit this man who was hitting me. I've only ever seen this scenario written by a man. Yeah, I agree completely. The idea and of chivalry being uh, uh, met with, you shouldn't hit my abusive boyfriend. Yeah, and, and Jake even has a really blatant line over the end of this scene, which is, I'm just looking for something to fight for. Mm. Me, or, or something worth fighting for, meaning I keep trying to fight for things and they don't want me to. Yeah. What the hell am I supposed to do with my life? And a scenario for this ended up in Trigger Warning. Do you remember the uh, that book where it's all about liberal tears and you need a, a right-wing guy to uh, 
uh, you know, save the college campus from international terrorists. It's like Die Hard in a college full of liberals. Yeah, but there's another angle on this story, which is what does a, a soldier... Don't attack my abusive bo- boyfriend, you fascist! <laughs> what does a soldier who's been trained that and taught that fighting is the way to solve the things that they're being thrown at... Mm. What do they do when you remove them from the theatre of conflict? How do they go back to a normal life? So re-watching it again um, the other day, I thought, since we're going back to Earth and we're exploring this anyway, spend a few extra minutes, have a scene at the beginning of the film where Jake and Tommy meet in a cafe, have a coffee, and you get a back-and-forth conversation between them where it seems like Jake is not getting on well and his brother is very excited about the new avatar program he's involved in but he doesn't want to leave earth and leave his uh, and leave Jake behind he wants to know Jake's going to be okay and then they go out into the back alley and then they get both mugged together or something and in a way that makes Tommy behave heroically and end up dead in the alley beside Jake who's lying there beside his brother's body and you get that sort of panning upwards thing and then when they're both in hospital and they lose Tommy the government G-men can turn to the next bed and say we've got this avatar puppet keyed to your twin brother's DNA it was we put a considerable dollar value into that he's supposed to be shipping out tomorrow and then that gives Jake a real choice to make. Like, do, do I now have to do do this thing to do right by Tommy? Would he have wanted me to? And then for the rest of the film, he's sort of living up to the ghost of his brother in, very symbolically, the body with legs that his brother is effectively providing him with. So then at the last shot of the film, when he opens his eyes, he's lying beside his old body and becomes the new version of himself. If that's the ending you want, that's the beginning you have. But that's not there. It's there in spirit because he goes to see his brother's body, talks about it for a bit, and he's very gruff and macho. And then we cut to uh, space when he's uh, orbiting Pandora and his tears are floating to illustrate he may be tough and macho, but he's capable of sensitivity. Is that tears? Those are tears. Wow, I never got that. I thought that was condensation from where he'd been breathing on the inside of this lid. You know what? It was probably condensation. But either way, Jake does have sensitivities beneath the uh, surface. But you're right in that because there is no interaction with Tommy and we don't have we don't know anything about Jake's relationships on Earth before he goes up to Pandora, mm. the impression that we get instead is this is a man who has nothing to lose, very little to live for, and this is really all about him rather than his brother. That's how Worthington apparently nailed the audition. He had grown sick of the fact that he looked conventionally handsome and should have been cast in every Johnny Template role, but they kept going to Jai Courtney. So uh, he came into the uh, uh, room and just sort of sat down and kind of, yeah, you know, what are we going to do? And just seemed relatively nonchalant about it. And Cameron went, you're the one. That's that's the fuck you, I don't care. That that apathy, that's what we're looking for. Yeah, yeah, he just sort of sat down and went, (laughs) You go ahead and stamp your form, Sonny, because, to be quite honest, I don't really give a shit. Boom, you're hired. Okay. (laughs) Whoa, no attitude, eh? Not in your face, huh? Well, you can cram it with walnuts, ugly. That's it! That's the poochie attitude! Do that again! Huh? I can't. I don't remember what I did. Then you don't get the job. Next! Oh, I don't get the job, do I? 
Well, boo-hoo, I don't get to be a cartoon dog. That's it, you've got the job! Oh, now I got the job, huh? Oh, thank you. Apparently when he found out he'd got the call back, he was snowboarding. And they were like, come down went, off the mountain. Yeah, He's like, I get, might get off die. The if you kill yourself, you don't get this job. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, like, he's a he's a decent enough guy, as far as I can tell. You know, never held his wife he at gunpoint. He is more talented than Jai Courtney, I will say. That. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, I, I, if, if there are sweaters to be folded, Jai's your man. <laughs> Interestingly, they've both played uh, best buddy of John Connor. Yes. Yes, indeed. Who, Swap that Terminator stick around. Yeah. Who do you prefer? Christian Bale, John Connor, or... What's his name? What's his fucking name? Ugly fuck. Peter Andre, <laughs> Jason Clark, John Connor. Oh, oh God, God, don't make me choose. Neither of them particularly, but I suppose... I'll have dead CGI gonk, John Connor, if yeah. that's okay. Christian Bale made a reasonably intense John Connor. Reasonably intense. Was he was roaring every other word. It was sort of appropriate for the context of the... the future setting that they put mm. him in. Notably, Worthington turned in a better performance with a more complex character mm. in that film. Yeah. But it's, it's fucking Absolutely. garbage directed by McGee. Indeed. They had two parallel stories and they hadn't decided which one to go with yet. Well, the fact that they recast pretty much at the last minute and Christian Bale was like, no, I want to play John Connor. It's like, okay, you have the more simple but better known uh, role and you'll be coming back for this, obviously. There were no sequels. Um, <laughs> but when... Jake Sulky does set down on Pandora, the temptation is immediately there. It is spelled out in words by the evil colonel. Uh, he is told, play right by us, Sonny, and you get legs. I will make sure that you get legs. And he's already illustrated that's going to be really, really difficult. His... They play it just right in terms of the disability, I think. Like just, for, just for regular people to understand how he feels like he's on the wrong foot at all times, as opposed to, I'm disabled, I'm cursed, curse this disabled yeah, body. It's, it's very much, this is who I am now, and I'm yeah. just going to get on with it, but he is also pushing this constant, I'm a Marine, I've got to keep up with everybody else, I can't let myself fall behind, mm. otherwise I'm less of a person than I was before. That is still very much something that he hasn't, come to terms with and by the end of the film he don't he no longer needs to come to terms with it which is one of the more frustrating elements of his character arc such as it or is or lack thereof okay so then we arrive on pandora and the real star of the show begins to show her face this this movie is all about Pandora. Everything else is, you will be witnesses to Pandora. This is your facilitating the immersion in this world. There are like five hours worth of extras on the second disc, and it is all technical stuff. It is all how we got the performance capture to work, how we created Pandora's jungle. Bit about the ecosystem, less than I would have hoped, actually. Like I wanted to see the, like a whole ecology lesson about it. It, it often seemed to come down to, rather than trying to create something where everything interacted with everything else and there's a consistency of design around the animals in the sense that if they've evolved into this environment there'd be certain commonalities of features mm. and more, well we threw a load of images at James and he picked the ones he liked. Really? Yeah. Okay. I feel like that's an oversimplification, and they, this is an example of when uh, digital artists really do their absolute best. 
and a lot of it also just comes down to how gorgeous they could make a digital film look. 90% of this movie is, is experienced within an environment that isn't real. And then that's most of the case with regular films, but at least when it's a, a room that's been, it's a set that's been done up to look like a room, what you're looking at is uh, sort of the facsimile of a room. But when you're outside, that grass is real. Here, it's not so much nothing is real, but very little was actually there in real life. It's, an, it's important to note the difference between practical and digital effects. Practical are effectively a magic trick to make you believe that the real-ish thing that you're looking at is complete and whole and exists outside of the shot that you're looking at it with. Mm. With digital, it's a case of this thing we've worked on, we want you to believe that this digital thing does exist within this space. It's ever so slightly different in terms of uh, Discipline, mm. and I and just for the record, by the way, when I'm saying we showed James a load of designs and he picked the ones he liked, I'm not saying that didn't work to extremely good effect. Everything in Pandora looks amazing, and the art and design team, the the costume design team, they didn't just hand sketches into the computer designers who were creating the imagery. They actually constructed in a lot of cases, handcrafted clothing and artefacts and sets. Real physical things did exist that were made and were then used as reference points by the digital artists in order to recreate them. And honestly, that kind of midpoint is not a bad approach when it comes to doing digital film, because when you're creating it out of very little, that's when we tend to find this situation where you're relying on the digital artists to come up with everything. Not necessarily on the spot, but, the, but every tiny detail, it is not possible for a human to think of every tiny detail in a CG-created mm. scene. If you have physical things to refer to, it will have those little imperfections, it will have those little unexpected ways that fabric falls or something like that that you can then replicate, but you wouldn't necessarily necessarily think of if somebody told you to design it from scratch. Mm. And again, with the no subtlety involved, as Jake Sulky wheels off the dropship, it cuts to a first-person perspective, and he wheels down the ramp, and we, the audience, go down with him. He is our avatar, we're seeing things through his eyes. To their credit, they don't tend to cut to a first-person perspective very often in the film, but it's definitely there to lead us in through the doorway. There's a lot of gateways that, that'll lead out to Pandora gradually opening herself up like a flower. And there's two, I'd say, key influences here. Three. One would be Cameron's previous work, because things like Aliens and Titanic in particular have you know, influence on the military and influence on the sweeping romance of the story. There is a romance there, even if it's not necessarily heteronormative male-female coupling. It's almost more us collectively falling in love with Pandora. The way he kind of wants you to fall in love with Titanic. At least the idea of the grandeur, even though you feel that it's dangerous and it's going to exclude you. So his influences are absolutely there. However, all of this, we want you, the audience, to feel like you're there, 
That's video games. That was the video games of the 2000s. Absolutely. And while it is entirely true that the word avatar has all sorts of other connotations outside of the the digital video game realm, Mm. it's got... That there's spiritual connotations in there. I believe originally it comes from uh, oh, it's something involving Hindu, Hindu isn't it? Uh, religion. But the point being, what people mostly use it for now is to refer to a digital body that you imagine yourself as to negotiate a digital space. Your digital proxy. Yeah. And while the creature that Jake is inhabiting is on our screens a digital body and quite literally an avatar in the world of Pandora it's supposed to be real Mm. so it just it felt like the wrong term to use when effectively what it's what it can't what it connotes really is this is how you pretend to be in another world And the whole point of the story is supposed to be that he's not pretending to be in another world. He is actually going to another world. How do you think that would have worked if he'd just stayed human the whole time? How did the the humans interact with their environment in a way that the Na'vi didn't? Well, for a start... Or vice versa, how did they not interact with their environment? Narratively, the humans are on guard against the environment all the time. Everything there wants to kill you, much like Skull Island. Exactly, and that actually felt felt very true to the exploration of colonialism and capitalism that it, it kind of wants to be and purports to be. Because the nature of how capitalist society has developed its relationship with the world over the last maybe five, six hundred years has been one of, we're fighting this thing. Mm. It's, it's totally, we want to extract whatever we can out of it and it's trying to kill us in return and everything that we have to do is defensive and protective and, and we have to isolate ourselves from the natural world and destroy as much of it as possible in order to keep ourselves safe. And I really did get that feeling from the humans being outside in Pandora. They have to constantly have these rebreathers on so they, they, they can't even inhale in Pandora. They can't smell the air because it will kill them. They can't interact with the plant life in their human form because they, they don't know what's toxic and what's not and it's too much of a risk to to go out and, and actually start physically interacting with things. Should have brought Pandora's Ellie Sattler with you. Well, indeed, yes. The other, the third aspect I think Cameron was going for here is he noticed that Michael Bay was doing him. And over the uh, 2000s, Michael Bay went from uh, doing Armageddon in 1999 all the way up to through Pearl Harbor two approaching three Transformers films and Bad Boys 2. Cameron clearly noted that Bay just wants to grab his audience and shake them up, get their adrenaline going, and then just cruelly git surf them through experience. And the intensity of that, and the the you know the flashiness and the bright lights, and just the the feeling of effectively being in a jigglebox um, amusement park ride. Mm. And I feel like Cameron very deliberately wanted to kind of hone in on the Bay side of things, or recapture what it is that Bay likes about his Cameron's films. But he also wanted to make it deeper. He wanted to convey something, whereas Bay has no politics at all. Bay is apolitical in terms of he doesn't care. He wants money. He likes money. So he will pander to uh, uh, the right. He will then pander in the same film to the left. Not as much. Not as much. Mostly right. But it does happen occasionally. Mm. 
Uh, and uh, it's it's insincere the whole way through. One of the things that I caught when we were listening to a bunch of commentaries for his other films, he hasn't done as many commentaries as I'd like. There's one for Aliens, one for T2, and Titanic, as far as I can tell. That, that is pretty much it. Uh... But he mentioned that Sigourney Weaver is a fierce liberal and she didn't want a gun in Aliens. She wanted the Marines to go in without guns. What are we supposed to use, man? Harsh language? (laughs) And uh, Jim said, well, they are Marines, so they're going to have guns. (laughs) And she said, well, I don't want a gun. Well, you're going to need one, otherwise you're going to get killed by an alien. I don't think I should have a gun. Okay, you won't have a gun. You, Sigourney Weaver, won't have a gun. But Lieutenant Ripley will. (laughs) And eventually she went and did some uh, uh, firing uh, on the range with him and was like, this is actually kind of fun. And he joked to her that another liberal bites the dust. And that was kind of shocking because I thought, aren't you liberal, James? Mm. And then I just sort of pondered what he's saying across his films. And I'm trying to work out what the difference is between Bay's pretty much worship of money nihilism. We believe in nursing, Lebowski, nursing and whatever it is that Cameron puts his stock faith in. Because I feel like he's much more of a humanist than even he would let on. I do think that's true, but I said this to you last night and I'm gonna say it again. You have to remember that he is a Canadian conservative, not an American conservative, if if conservative is how he would define Mm. himself. I think he Also he said another liberal bites the dust in 2003. Oh no, yeah, he was referring in 2003 in the commentary to something that happened in 1986. Yeah. Under Reagan was different from under Trump. Liberalism has changed quite substantially since then, as have most political stripes, to be quite honest with you. But yeah, he's he's not the same kind of... Maybe libertarian would be the right term, but again, he's not the same as an American libertarian. And Sigourney Weaver is maybe a little bit more of an American liberal. Liberal means something different in Canada than it does in America as well. Mm. And, like, using weapons for target practice or hunting and people having... Is not right-wing in and of itself. In Canada, that's that's totally normal. That's totally the standard. Being anti-gun in an environment where everybody is using them sensibly and keeping them stored responsibly and not shooting everybody with it at every moment of the day and night is very different from being anti-gun in an environment where that is happening all the goddamn time. And firing guns off at paper targets is a hell of a lot of fun as is firing off Nerf guns. It's when people start getting injured and killed that uh, I suddenly, I I turn right the fuck off it. Yeah, or bows and arrows. I I never quite took to firearms, but I do love me some archery. But in Aliens, the things that the guns were being fired at were fucking xenomorphs that are the most terrifying, deadly creatures absolutely intent on using your body for their own reproduction. Mm. So, fire away. Indeed. And frankly, the pulse rifle is your best bet at a distance, because if it gets too close, anything you hit it with is just going to splat you with acid blood. Yeah. So before we get into the Avatar program, that we meet the Colonel. What's his name? I want to say Markinson. Oh, Quaritch. Colonel Miles Quaritch. Stephen Lang. Scary motherfucker. Seriously. I hadn't seen Don't Breathe when I last saw uh, Avatar, but now that I've uh, seen it, and he plays the blind man in that film, sort of stalking a bunch of invading teenagers around his darkened home, uh, he becomes kind of a monster, but at the same time he's defending his territory, so it's a strange film to watch, until you get to the turkey baster scene, in which case, yeah, no, fuck that guy. Um, but, But Stephen Lang himself remains scary as fuck, and his strange intensity, and complete black and whiteness of character. Like, yeah, his 
Over the course of the uh, movie, he doesn't grow by one inch. He just seems to get meaner and more interested in killing people, specifically the Na'vi. Like, he's been wanting to do it for a long while. Mm. There's a deleted scene where Giovanni Ribisi, the suit, who's like, I've got to get... You're, you're fucking always forming a powwow circle. Like, he's just... He hates all of this tree-hugging hippie shit. But he says, you're out of control, uh, Colonel. You can't just go in there and shoot everyone. And uh, Stephen Lang's character sort of grabs him by the throat and then, like, grabs his head and goes, like, you're a long way from home, boy. And he's like, okay. And I, 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 it was a confusing scene because it's like, is, are we supposed to feel sorry for Burke in this film? Because that's who he is. Burke. Carter Burke. He's always been that great yeah, suit. I don't think it's so much that we're supposed to feel sorry for him, but we are supposed to understand that he does not have the power he thinks he has in this situation. Mm. That when you bring in attack dogs to do your dirty work, at some point you take the risk that the attack dogs start calling the shots. Yeah. And there have been more recent parallels about... Uh, if you've got a thousand rabid dogs running around, letting more dogs out is not necessarily going to uh, uh, solve any problem that you might have. In fact, if anything, it might just spread the rabies. The mineral that uh, Burke, uh, Giovanni Ribisi's character, is looking for is called unobtainium. And I think the villains in the... Yeah, she's holding her hand in her hands. The villains in this make the villains in Titanic look like fucking... Prince Nuada Silverlance. Absolutely. If you're making Billy Zane look multi-level, then uh, yeah. They like it's, all they care about is their precious money. That's what the suits want. They want this unobtainium, and it really feels like that was a placeholder name that they forgot to change before the end. Frankly, I wish they had. Not for my benefit, but because it's all I hear from about Avatar um, commentary saying, "Oh, you called it unobtainium." It's like it was rather on the nose. That's what James Cameron does. Yes. he's rather on the nose. It this is. was just top tier, rather on the noseness. But, I mean, if they could have called it just selenium. Like, we have now st uh, found our way to use selenium for, uh, you know, really important stuff back on Earth. It'll help us colonize other planets, and we can improve our interest there. So we're mining for selenium here. And like, you call it that, and everyone goes, yeah, okay, so selenium. Unobtainium is just kind of underlining that in red sharpie and going, ah, you see what we're doing there? And it's like, yeah, we see what you're doing there. I wouldn't be surprised if they didn't rename Unobtainium later on, and it turns out to be something more like Vibranium. It's a silly thing for it to be in the film, it's a very silly thing for it to be the MacGuffin that everyone's after, but that's what MacGuffins are. Silly. They're things that are like, nobody cares about this. It may as well be called MacGuffin Item. But I did notice about the security team in this, there are parallels you can draw with the colonial marines in Aliens, in so far as they are brought in by the company, effectively as mercenaries, to serve the company's interests. And uh, this is Cameron's take on the military-industrial complex. But what really struck me this time watching them was not so much, like, you're with the Marines in Aliens. Like, you, they're funny, they have banter back and forth. It's definitely supposed to be the kind of movie where you're supposed to feel a little bit gung-ho with them. And then when they get all fucked up, you're like, well, I didn't think that was going to happen. You were all brash and pig-headed, especially you, Hudson. But here, you're not supposed to like or identify with the Marines. They're not even really Marines. They're, they're with these security team whatsoever. Like, Jake Sully is the only one with a gun that you're supposed to give the thumbs up to. Mm. 
Yeah. Well, he's he's also, and I, I'm not sure how definitively this point is made. I'm sure he mentions it in passing. He's the only one who is like traditionally marine trained with a code and an honor and a. And so he's a, a real soldier to, to do something properly. They are security guards. They are there for hire to do a job. Yeah. Um, and this is an aspect of it that's actually carried forwards and is frighteningly relevant when you look look at this security team and how they behave and how they seem itching to just go out and hurt people and then look at the way cops pretend that they're military in america like i want more ordnance i want more of a uniform that makes me look like i'm in military fatigues i want to drive a bear cat down main street i don't care if it may, leaves it all cracked and broken i'm gonna fire at the dairy queen just in case and it's they're playing at being soldiers. This big attack that happens in this movie is a bunch of Paul Blart mall cops who've all been given pulse rifles. Long, long, long weekend warriors. And some of them have got mech suits. And they're kind of drunk on the power. And, and again, there's a sort of a, a, a skinheaded guy who's like sort of, hey, fresh meat. I don't even know his name. That's how little developed these caricature human beings are. Like, the Na'vi get loads, and that's all right and proper, but it, it makes everything so fucking black and white. The Na'vi are all absolutely correct about everything. These guys are absolutely wrong about everything. And it's hard to argue because they are merely ciphers. They are representatives of greed-fueled colonialism ravaging the land. And just bully boy stomping in, I'm getting paid for this, so I don't care, and I'm not going to think twice about murder. It's not the same at all as Vietnam, mm. where so many of the uh, GIs over there were conscripted. They were forced out there, mm. and they went through hellish fucking conditions. I don't think this is a... It may use the aesthetics of the Vietnam War, but it is not a reflection on the Vietnam War. No, not at all. Aliens was that he intended to make the Marines in Aliens reflective yeah. of... Yeah, them going in all brash and headstrong and getting fucked up by the aliens. By because, an enemy they don't understand. Yeah, an enemy where they're in this enemy's environment mm -hmm. and, you know, being that close, the, the enemy can simply take you, snatch you and rip your world yeah. to pieces. And that's not the point here at all. This is not about them going up against an enemy they don't understand. This is very much about their approach is wrong yeah. and they get punished for it. And honestly, it is very black and white and it, it is difficult to sort of find any hazy middle ground. But I do kind of prefer that to what they do in Pocahontas, which is this kind yeah. of this is this is two sides of a coin, and they're both as bad as each other. They're savages, really savages, barely even human. Point? Well, no, they started it. As prep work, we watched both Fern Gully: The Last Rainforest, which I don't think you had ever seen, and I only saw I lightly seen in the early nineties. Okay. I don't think I paid much it's attention. It's very naive, and then Pocahontas is a step up from that, mm. but still very naive. And as you say, it is peddling the wrong-headed account that white Virginian settlers warring against the local nations of natives that they were both as bad as each other and it was their own male aggression which made this go wrong as opposed to why don't they just talk to each other and then eventually the, the native people realised that we could all be friends and they decided to come and help us and then it was all sweetness and light thus um... solving the problem forever <laughs> but what about forever <laughs> yeah. yeah but I don't 
think, and we will talk about this when we get there, but I don't believe that the course that this film takes and the conclusion that it reaches <laughs> is helpful either. Ah, okay. Well, well let's get there when we uh, cover the Na'vi. So what are ways that the planet Pandora makes you feel different to other environments that had been seen up until 2009 in uh, uh, James Cameron's Avatar? Because afterwards there was a slew of imitators, Mm. especially as all the cinemas had to be retrofitted with the technology to deliver to people this new version of 3D in real D. And then a new kind of like it wasn't brand new for Avatar they did they did it with Beowulf as well and it was sickening and then the refined version of 3D was better and then they started doing it where they were retrofitting existing films into 3D when they weren't supposed to be originally and people were just going everything looks weird and flat and small and but but what's different about Pandora only in 2D the color that is really notable. Every, I mean, this we know this of Cameron. It's unsurprising if a, a sizable proportion of the film is blue. We're used to that. But this is blue with a capital yeah. B and capital everything else, frankly. And he never really worked with pinks and greens before either. But Reds he, and blues, yes. He, he does work this that, that in, but it, everything feels very vivid and it's beautiful and it is incredibly immersive that he uses light to create this environment that that really draws you in and makes you want to be there and it's like the experience of fireworks for people who who like fireworks and and particularly the ones that are quieter and don't have the noisy explosions Mm. that that concept of colored flowers blossoming in the sky Mm. there's a an awe that kind of touches anybody who's really into that sort of visual display and I think Pandora does have that in spades it's been visually created extremely well what I find intriguing about that and the 3D technology is that in order to use the 3D technology later films have got less colourful and nobody seems to have been able to find that combination of 3D and vividness. If you consider uh, the films of the 2000s when they still hadn't quite gotten digital cameras to work, this was a very this was a turn up for the books after a lot of grey hmm. taken, and it's like had become the standard action fare. So you'd just get grey, dingy looking. Like the the horror scene had been taken over for a while by torture porn, so it was just dingy basements. Yeah, because. God knows you don't want the lights turned up bright on that. Yeah, but, but like there wasn't any high contrast lighting anymore. It wasn't even about shadows. It was just about filth and depravity and rusty hinges. Excellent. Uh, very significantly, I think Oz the Great and Powerful was a, a really good example of a film that had nothing particularly to offer the world, and it was also aping Avatar's brilliant living forest. But if you think about it, before this, most jungle type scenarios you either filmed in the jungle or in a jungle-ish type environment in Burbank like a botanical garden. Fetch me the pot plants. Uh, or uh, you constructed a set like like Fangorn Forest in the two, uh, the two Towers. That is effectively bringing in trees into a studio and just sort of making a forest there. Mm. So this was a, a, a fine example of it's not really there where colouring it in later, there was a lot of shooting on green screen. And as a result, 
the possibility would have been there that if, I mean, a lot of the humans do seem less like they're in the world, that if they'd focused on it just being from a human's perspective, it would have felt more of an awkward fit, mm -hmm. like Eddie Valiant in Toontown. Yeah. But because you're effectively with Roger Rabbit from this point onwards, mm. it gels more. Yeah. Well, it's it, it would have been counter to what the film was trying to get across if they'd focused on the human perspective, because the whole point is that they're bringing the world of the Na'vi to you, and you're immersing yourself in it. If you're seeing it from the perspective of humans who are having to watch it from behind glass screens, mm. how is that any different from watching a documentary on TV at home? Yeah. There's a verticality to it as well. The The trees are absolutely immense and go on for so high you can barely see the sky, but when you do see the sky, it's filled with stars and it looks absolutely gorgeous. The purple lights, the blue lights, the green lights. It is designed to be the most appealing, peaceful, exciting, exhilarating place possible. And, yeah. There is a, an almost complete lack of red. You get very occasional flashes of red and yellow, yeah. but for the most part, it's very soothing colours as well. There's nothing there that's going to angry up the blood yeah. or be particularly harsh on the eyes. And the sounds are all somewhat peaceful as well. They don't have like... Like some twatty birds screaming in yeah, the tree. You do get the lemurs chattering a little bit. Occasionally, but it just it makes you feel more like you're immersed in a jungle, for real, than that you're uh, wandering around in a zoo and there's a bunch of um, obnoxious animals that are sick and tired and bored of just being on damp cement every day. Yeah, there's a harmony to it. Yeah, which brings me to Pandora in Animal Kingdom. Back in 2017, Sharon, myself and our kid went to... Uh, Florida and had a like did every theme park we possibly could for what now seems to be a once in a lifetime vacation. Once again, a reinforced thank you to everyone who helped around about that time. We were doing a lot of commission shows so that we could afford to be able to do this thing. But yeah, we were saving up like crazy, and those commissions really helped us take the edge off a lot of the expenditures. But one of the lands in Disney's Animal Kingdom is Pandora. And what was that like to be there at? And by all means, bring in what Jenny Nicholson said in her uh, hour-long dissertation about uh, <laughs> the uh, slight weirdness and creepiness of the Kingdom of Pandora. I'll let you bring in most of that because the, the things that I have to say apply also to the film and I'll get to them later. Okay. But it's, I, I, I really loved being in the Pandora world. It felt very immersive. They'd got the things like the lights, and we, we very specifically went to that area of the park towards the end of the day when it was getting dark so that the lights would be able to, yeah. to have their best effect. The bioluminescence, or at least the simulation of it. Yeah, and the, the fact that everything is built around light and colour and sound, and it, it feels very aesthetically pleasing and again soothing and Disney World jangles the nerves I'm yeah. gonna be honest with you it's hot it's bright there's people there's noise if you give me a list of things I don't like <laughs> most of them would be on the list of features that Disney World has so really you want to go when it's closed during the winter it's that a cooler temperature and no lovely. one's there but it's Florida they don't have winter out there they have a sort of winter when it <laughs> Goes from being they have an off season. <laughs> from being inside an oven to somebody turning the oven off, and like those 
min- those two or three minutes as it's slowly stopping roasting you. Yes, indeed, which are nice. But I, I did appreciate, I mean, Animal Kingdom, I think, was unanimously all of our favourite part. Yeah. And Pandora was a particularly appealing area of Animal Kingdom to be in. I as, very much could have done with another visit there. Yeah, that's, uh, we were planning to in the summer of 2020. That did not turn out fantastic. Indeed. Uh, but Jenny pointed out that the this is a land that was erected by Disney after they tried to get a certain Joe Rowling to sign off on a Harry Potter Worlds of Magic land uh, in one of their, uh, you know, in areas in uh, Orlando. But she didn't like their plan for the train. She didn't like their plan for the train. She had to have her train. And they said, no, we've already got a bunch of trains at uh, Disney World. But uh, thank you anyway. And she went off and did that. with. She got her own theme park with Blackjack and Hookers with Universal Studios, who said, you can have all the trains you want, lady. <laughs> but then they were just sort of, well, we haven't really got anything to go up against the magical world. Ooh, what's exactly as popular as Harry Potter? Well, it's 2010, so I could only say Avatar. And at the time, it seemed like a really good idea. More to the point, what's as popular as Harry Potter and is a property we already own? They didn't at oh, that did point. They, not they didn't buy stage. Fox okay. until much later. Right. It was more of a collaboration, the same way that Fox obviously owned Star Wars for the longest time, yeah. and uh, or at least were working with Star Wars, so that when it came time to buying it, 2012, that they were sold Star Wars by Lucas. Mm. They didn't own Star Wars beforehand. They do now. Uh, But similarly, they didn't own Fox until way later, like 2017. All right, that's fair enough. I I actually do think that the the whole narrative that they've woven around the world of Pandora is fucked when the new films come out. (laughs) Because that's not going to be the narrative of the new films. Well, what's the narrative? The narrative is that the original Mean Corporation mm-hmm. have left and a new, nicer corporation have arrived and have formed a much more harmonious partnership with the Navi and created tourist attractions that don't ravage the land and are more in keeping with showing the appeal of Pandora as it is, rather than simply using it for resources, which does tie in with a broader theme of Animal Kingdom, which is about conservation and and preservation of animals and plant life on Earth. Mm. Now, Cameron himself said specifically that uh, what he was urging people towards in this film was not... Uh, to go back to a time when we lived uh, all outside in the uh, rural areas and that cities didn't exist. Um, He doesn't think we should leave the cities and try and rough it on the uh, land ourselves, and that that will return us to a harmony with the land. Um, We can't go back and he understands and accepts that. Uh, What we can do though is acknowledge that we have gone from rural and agrarian to industrialized and urban and then advance another step into the future wherein we become technologically enhanced indigenous. To work better with our earth, to understand our environment and to have developed the science to better harmonize. Mm, Yeah, there's there's elements of that that really fit with um, something I've been 
reading about lately called Donut Economics, which is kind of a antithesis to the capitalism based system that we are somewhat trapped in right now. Mm-hmm. Filled donuts or ring donuts? Ring donuts. Ah. The principle behind donut economics is that you have, you draw your two concentric circles so that it looks like a donut. Mm-hmm. And the idea is that everybody on the planet should be able to live within the donut part. That there is a, a floor level of resources and not wealth, but just being provided for or having access to what they need to live, food, water, clean So say universal health care and potentially exactly. a universal basic health, wage. Uh, health, education, basically that there is a level below which people should not drop. And yeah. we are not a thriving society unless we can say that the majority of the people do not drop below the floor on these things. Whereas with capitalism's rules, you have to have people on the bottom so that Otherwise, you Otherwise, can... how will the people at the top know that they're at the top? Yeah. Exactly. And how do you keep the people who are above the bottom upwardly mobile? Exactly. And the outer part of the donut, the outer circle, indicates the ceiling beyond which you should not go in terms of extracting resources from the natural environment. You keep them at a level where they can replenish themselves and you. everybody has what they need, but nobody has more than they need, or at least not so much more than they need, that the earth is being stripped out at a great rate of knots. Yeah. All that said, and his urging uh, for us to become techno-indigenous and for us to culturally and uh, technologically evolve, he's nudging us towards Wakanda, which I can completely get behind. Techno-indigenous? But at Pandora in Disney's Animal Kingdom, there aren't any Navi at all. You're wandering around, there's human beings everywhere. Everyone who works in the shops and the restaurants, they're human. They talk about that they're friends with the native population and that they work with them. And you get photographs on the wall of the groundbreaking. And, uh, you know, they photoshopped in a Navi, like, sort of with a giant shovel. And uh, it feels like the Navi are there, they're just hiding. And you can buy beads and necklaces in the gift shops and... Which kind of goes back to that thing I said about seeing them from behind glass screens, which is about the same as mm. watching things on a documentary. And that's... And you can get your face of... scanned and they'll snap together a doll that looks somewhat like you for a, the low, low price of $80. Mm. There's a lack of interaction in that. There's a lack of any sense of these. This is a real community of real people. It's this is a a group that is isolated, and they should stay that way. And we should keep our distance and respect their uh, their not wanting to come anywhere near us. But watch them with binoculars. Yeah, that's not better. <laughs> and uh, obviously, we can't have ten foot tall people, but we could maybe have seven foot tall people. And with the the, uh, the like, every land has a narrative conceit, and it goes by a uh, a, t- a storyline. And the storyline here would be: well, these are hybrid Navi humans, so they're a little bit shorter than regular Navi, but they have grown up in uh, groups and within nations of the Navi as their as theirs as their children. So we can talk to them, and then you have actors who are effectively playing playing the part of the people whose land you are standing on. But they didn't do that. The closest you get to meeting an actual Navi is at the end of the Dark Ride, which is sort of a a very low-key Pirates of the Caribbean. There's 
a Navi singing a song and she's animatronic and sort of like moving her head around and her arms and it's it's neat but it feels like there's a kind of an almost existential dread about the place and it's a celebration of a world and its people but you can't see its people and it feels like well if all we can see is the world then we're taking the world it's strangely at odds with what they were trying to set up with this. And Animal Kingdom are very into conservation. Like there was when we were there, loads of like little messages around the place saying we want to plant trees our grandchildren can uh, can sh rest under. And it's it's a mentality of a benevolent old person who is a is accepting of death and and wants there to be a future and a bright one and then that they can help with that. So, it feeling like a great big Native American side-of-the-road bead-selling shop feels Awkward. uncomfortable. Especially as everything is Disney-priced. Mm. Yeah. Jenny pointed out that uh, when you pay for the $80 doll, a lot of what you're paying for is the performance of the clerk who goes, yeah, just uh, sit on this thing, I'm going to scan your face. And Jenny specifically said, should I take my ears off? And he was like, eh, you can leave them on. In a kind of a, this isn't really scanning shit. Like, what you're getting here is identikit. It is a cheap way of repackaging something which is supposed to feel sacred in this... within the context of this story. Though, that's made up for, to some degree, by something called Flight of Passage, where you are... Uh, you know, first off, you queue around the block for friggin' two hours in the hot, hot sun. And as we said on, on our uh, show where we uh, talked about coming home from this, it was on uh, Patreon, we got like an hour through and this little old lady with her grandson behind us suddenly piped up, is this something to do with Star Trek or something? I'm like, oh my God. You, mm. If you're going to pay that much money, if you're going to come and give up that much day, to know a little bit about what you're doing would definitely help. Because when you're at a theme park, you've just paid them a large amount of money. And what they've given you is time. And you have that time to spend on each ride or restaurant or attraction or meeting a princess or just standing there. If you dice it down into hour long chunks and how much each one of those is gonna cost, you're giving up two key hours in the morning when you're when you have energy if you're that sort of person it better be for something special as it turned out flight of passage does feel special you uh, get told that you're effectively going to have your brain beamed into an at this point empty avatar body that's tuned to you and you get to fly around on a ikram I was like, yeah, okay, cool. And I sat on the what looks like an exercise bike looking at the matchbox size screen in front of me going, okay, so is like something going to turn up there? And then the whole thing just kind of falls away and Pandora opens out in front of you and you can feel the Ikran's lungs expanding between your legs as you kind of like, oh shit, I'm actually riding on this thing. And it takes you swooping left and right. It's like a a mini pod version of the Back to the Future ride, but attuned to Pandora. And it was so transportive that when I finally got out, I kind of sank to my knees, breathing hard. And uh, Victoria Grieve pointed out that I that was the point, and we mentioned this during Free Guy, I think, where 
I had reality sickness. I, you know, I had spent long enough in a simulation for my brain to believe that it was real mm. and my body to believe with the smells and the sights and the it was kind of like Soarin' from Epcot but even more immersive and powerful so that is a triumph of a ride and it's very very difficult to package that sort of thing and deliver something which feels spiritual and emotional to those who don't normally feel those connections unless they're very, very high or drunk. And even when they do, they're scary. Mm, Not everyone's the same. So repackaging Avatar for a million, million people is going to be particularly tricky because this is something that goes beyond the words that they use to describe it. Technically, Avatar is the deepest of all of his films, but because so much of it's unspoken and so much of it feels weirdly commodified, it also feels like one of his more shallow films. Mm-hmm. It's about everything, but how it's about everything is often rather fleeting. Special note must be given to the music of James Horner, who you said the other day was uh, has fast become one of your favorite composers. Mm-hmm. incredibly immersive he utilized uh, just two women for so much of his choral work all of those uh, the chanting that you hear uh, was was two women in his recording studio who were working with him through direction they used the Navi language which was created by an expert linguist and he worked in collaboration with Cameron and the cast to give the Omatakaya clan what felt like a very authentic manner of speaking rather than uh, it, what um, George Lucas tended to do in the original Star Wars trilogy was go, oh, you can speak Swahili, just say some of that. Weirdly, though, the uh, chanting and singing evoked Brother Bear for me, and the chants for that are meant to describe the First Nation, Northern Canadian um, natives, and it's Bulgarian singing. So there's a strange kind of global snake trail that sort of leads you to be- to feel like you're hearing something indigenous from that particular region, but they've actually pulled it from somewhere else entirely. So there's a sense of otherworldliness that's more of a composite of cultures than a direct analogue. However, when it comes to the Na'vi themselves, almost everything is tied to them being Native Americans. To the point where a lot of people made comparisons to Dances with Wolves here as Jake Sulky becomes the best of the Na'vi ever. And I had some ideas while we were watching this to how they could have smoothed that element down.
catch Brother Bear, which this is, in HD on Disney Plus, it will be so happy to get some attention from you. Because he gets an avatar body, he goes and blunders around the jungle until he finds a uh, willing, helpful uh, member of that clan, Nitiri, who, after insulting him for most of the evening, brings him back to her place like a stray, and uh, he ingratiates himself upon the clan. But so much of, of how they speak and how they talk about the land comes directly from Native American cultures. It was one of the reasons why I made my felines in Tiger's Eye and then later in Panthersoul a composite of African, Asian, Native American, a little bit of Tibetan, just elements in there so it would never feel like I was leaning too heavily on one. And I absolutely drew from Cameron's avatar when it came to describing the world and really filling in this intense, heady series of scents and feelings. And I there was trying to hone in on the fact that the cats would have much better ears, much better noses than us. So those sounds and smells would be more like living things to them. My head turns this way and that, scenting it. I catch it hiding in the hollow of a drago tree some way away, but I do not approach. Instead, I glance over and then turn my back, thinking and considering. It does not emerge, but I hear three telltale clicks as it suppresses sneezes. I sigh and take a strip of dried antelope from my pouch. I approach the drago trunk, stop some yards off, and place the meat on the leaves of the forest floor. I return to my spot, turn my back, and sit. This is foolish. Leave it or kill it. Not much meat for the family. Perhaps a good meal for you. It has emerged. It is creeping forward. The food is gone. The small animal has returned to its hidey hole. Tiny scent of meat being chewed. I scan the canopy and spot a sunfruit tree. I am in the tree, retrieving a particularly juicy one. I take another for me and return to the floor. I lay the offering in the same spot and go back to mine. I eat my fruit and wait. The fruit is gone, yet it will still not venture closer to me. My patience dwindles. Then a raptor shows up. Quietly but I can feel it slinking through the undergrowth, licking its jaws. It is making for the tree and the opening of the hollow. Short, scuttling rushes, checking me for movement. Leave it. This is right. The strange creature does not belong here, and the forest should take him. The reptor opens its mouth wide and hisses, I hear a panic scream and again carols in my thoughts. 
have the reptar's open jaws in my grip, and I force them apart, carefully avoiding the elongated fangs, dribbling, paralyzing venom. A splintering sound, and the beast drops, gurgling, its long, forked tongue lolling. One of the best things I've ever done, Tiger's Eye, the audio drama, spotlighting the amazing voice of Maureen Foley, is available on my Bandcamp page, or you can find the episodes on the New Century Multiverse podcast feed. The music I'm using here is from Disney's Tarzan, which, ten years before Avatar, presented me with a jungle that I could fully immerse myself in. Mark Mancina's music is, of course, not in Tiger's Eye, but that moment of Carla discovering and defending baby Tarzan from Sabor definitely stuck in my head, more so than Natiri and Jake Sulky. But as a result of making them much more like Native Americans, what Cameron has done is effectively brought us back to colonial times and said, here are the white settlers, they want what is underneath the natives, and they'll play ball for a while, but eventually they'll just break out their equivalent of poison blankets and take it. It's very significant that the mineral that the settlers they're not even settlers they have no intention of living here they're just here to strip mine the place colonists the colonists are here for um you could call them thieves if you wish yeah that also corporate works. thieves <laughs> yeah but the thing that they're here for is not something that the navi use in any way themselves it's not about stealing the resources that they are utilizing it's about missing the whole point of what this planet provides because all you can see is the bit underneath that you can burn. Yeah. You think you own whatever land you land on The earth is just a dead thing you can claim But I know every rock and tree and creature has a life, has a spirit, has a name there's still some good elements to Pocahontas which make it worthwhile watching today. Oh, that song still gets me every time. Yeah. There's a series of ups and downs with the Navi themselves. Some of them look fantastic to this day. Some of them have aged very poorly. And I would say Jake Sully in particular looks weird and creepy for far too much of this film. Like, if you tried to release this film today, people would be fascinated, but they'd say, Jake's face is all wrong, the way that Sonic's face was all wrong. Why has he got teeth in that same way? Well, he's a living being who needs teeth to eat. But why has Sonic got teeth? There's a moment in... I can't remember which of the Lord of the Rings films it is. I think it might be Two Towers. But there's a moment when you have a close-up on Gollum's face and he's asleep and he's talking in his sleep hmm. and there's something that feels unnatural about the way his lips are moving. His lips are moving and the rest of his face is not and it just, for that very brief moment, looks wrong. Hmm. And that is kind of the vibe I was getting from some of the, the close-up face shots in this. Especially Jake Sulky. It's, the, their eyes are placed in a strange area of their head 
specifically his, which is a triangular head, he's got this tapir nose, almost, which is supposed to be a cat snout. I was going to say, they're very cat-like. They're very mm. feline in their features. Yeah, they've, they've gone out of their way. I went the, that extra step and was like, well, what if they actually were cats? We like looking at cats. Cats have amazing faces. They have an understanding of what a tiger is supposed to look mm. like. But this is... For the same reason that they, uh, there was a complaint of Andy Serkis's Jungle Book, where it looked like Bagheera had a human nose, and it was uh, his face was squashed. I think it was Christian Bale for that, squashed into that of a panther's body, and it just looked a bit weird. This is that with giant bipedal feline beings, much more humanoid. But there are times when the cats in Cats look like more like living creatures mm. and real things yeah. than uh, some of the Navi here. There's a definite Uncanny Valley drop-off from yeah. time to time. On the other hand, Nitiri, uh, played by Zoe Saldana, looks fantastic, acts extremely well, and tends to come off excellently as a character for most of her screen time. I noticed that Cameron plays around with making her attractive when she first turns up and she sort of tries to get the jackals off of Jake because he's been blundering around in the dark and now he, they're trying to kill him he's trying to kill them as far as she's concerned the jackals were just doing what jackals do he's the one who got in the way and when she's protecting him she's got this giant sort of rounded forehead and the, the sort of bared teeth and she looks frightening and almost vampiric like, you know the way that they uh, uh, make the almost verminous, uh, rat-like v- uh, vampires, the Nosferatu kind? She looks like that. But then as the film goes on and she becomes more romantically entangled with Jake, she looks more and more human because Cameron wants us to want to bone her, which uh, it's it's not necessarily sexualizing her. She doesn't bend over and poke her ass in the air like a Michael Bay movie would have her do. Even Fern Gully, that fairy, had like a Tinkerbell butt whose body was based on Margaret Kerry, the dancer, not Marilyn Monroe. What Kerry did for the Disney animators was physical reference. It was the performance capture of the 1950s. Luckily, though, there is enough dimensionality to Natiri that she's right most of the time, which helps. She's brave and affects change herself rather than just letting it happen to her and complaining about it. And she puzzles over what is to be done. She is, in effect, a great character we could have started with if we wanted the story to be much more fascinating and much more of a sort of a heady, involved with this culture scenario, rather than being an outsider and delivering that to uh, regular audiences. That's why I started Tiger's Eye with the hunter herself, yeah, rather than starting with a human. You've even got some good meat on the backstory to be explored oh, yeah. in that regard. because Her sister was horribly killed during a school shooting. Absolutely. That you have this ten years or so of, of coexistence that's already happened before Jake gets there, mm. that Natiri is dealing with all of that and the whole clan are have become more defensive because they let their guard down and connected with Grace and the science team and that extension of their trust was violated. I I felt like uh, watching it um, the past day or so 
they also missed a trick when it came to Grace, played by Sigourney Weaver, fantastically. Like, she's very much a sort of a Ripley who's learned to play ball with the company so that it will allow her to do what she needs to do. Um, and she's hoping she'll still be allowed to when the company begin to tighten its grip. Cameron described it to indigenous people that he was visiting in South America, protesting a dam, a series of dams being built, which they have been protesting since the early 80s. Mm-hmm. And finally got they, the dams got finished in 2019. So progress succeeded and their protests fell on deaf ears. He likened it to a boa constrictor that when it kills its prey, it doesn't just bite them and swallow them. It coils around and around and then squeezes. And then they hold and the animal can barely breathe. But every time it lets out a breath, the hold gets tighter until they lack the energy to breathe in again which is a panic-inducing metaphor, but it is a really good example of what he was describing as capitalist greed. Their ideal is to take without a struggle with minimal risk to themselves. Boa constrictors don't want to fight, they just want to eat. That's why when you contend against them, when you rail against them, when you speak out against them, they get offended and ask you to put your complaints in the form of a letter that they can ignore. That removes the struggle for them. They will keep taking. They won't actually stop unless they are made to stop. And yeah, Grace, as a teacher and someone who spent a long time in a a borrowed, cloned Navi body, is someone who's connected with them. I said, if Jake could meet someone like Grace who's been living with them for a decade and has totally ensconced themselves in the Amatakaya uh, way of life, then rather than, and then Jake the white guy became the best indigenous person who ever lived, capable of feats that none of them could manage. And why is that, I ask you? Because he has nothing to lose, so he has no fear. The rest of the warriors do have things to lose, and thus they become fearful. Except that this life is exactly what Jake wants. This is what he has to lose. He would be afraid. Instead of that, it becomes a case of, like Hawkeye in Last of the Mohicans when, it, when he's done well, like say by Michael Mann. Because the original James Fenimore Cooper book is just a heap of the problematic. But in Michael Mann's version, his whiteness barely gets brought up because he lives so closely with the Mohicans. He doesn't... They don't distinguish him and neither does he. And it's that sense of I have totally taken their culture on board rather than forcing mine. I think it's it's the element of really being engaged with rather than being touristy. Mm. That's the distinction with Hawkeye and Last of the Mohicans. There's never any sense that if the shit hits the fan, he's going to abandon them and go back to live with the whites. That's not going to happen. Yeah. But if Grace had been effectively Jake Sulky's mentor, you would have had precedent for someone who had learned all of these ways. And then the same basic thing can happen to Grace as we get as we move forwards, but make her more part of the tr- part of the clan themselves rather than a science connection. You can absolutely have norm for that science connection. 
but it's the the fact that Jake moves in and suddenly starts doing amazing things with his determination that none of the rest of them have, which fe- leaves a bitter taste on the tongue. Mm. Because it, it, especially as as he rises and rises in prominence, and eventually the chieftain dies, and their strongest warrior, Sute, who uh, immediately uh, felt uh, paranoid of Jake and didn't trust him for good reasons. He shouldn't have trusted him. You know, finally dies, falls in combat and says, because the day has been won, you must lead them. You, white man, lead our people. There's no one else, excuse me, there's no one else on the whole planet of Pandora better suited to lead our families than you, white guy, because you found the big red bird. It feels like if his journey had been more towards helping them to get the tiniest chance to take a breath before the the constrictions begin anew, what the film is then delivering to us is we don't have to be the champion, we just have to give a shit enough to help the right people at the right time. Yeah, There's actually a, a deleted scene that I thought would have been very valuable to enhancing that element of the story where Jake and Trudy, played by Michelle Michelle Rodriguez, Rodriguez, who's a pilot for the Colonials. You're the pilot. But ultimately decides that she's not willing to keep doing what they're asking her to do. They go and tell the Na'vi how they can attack colonial machinery and and weaponry to take it out so that they have a chance. Giving them the inside skinny on the weaknesses of a dropship. That's the contribution that you're your incoming yeah. people need to be providing. Not, I'll be up front leading you, I will provide you with the intel that nobody in your clan can provide because they don't have any contact with these people. But instead, it turns out to be, I'm better at riding these bird things than you've ever been because I have no fear and you have fear. That's troubling as a uh, as a core story. It's also more than a bit troubling, and again, this is consistent with the the Pocahontas elements of the narrative, that if the saving of a people is dependent on one of them being horny for one of you, then that's that's not a good plan. (laughs) You, You can't rely on that. But yeah, as, as Navi go, Jake, the guy you're going to spend the most time looking at the face of, has a weird, boss-eyed, ping-pong ball-looking, grinning, strange face that gets worse every year. It's not Polar Express bad, but it's in that league. And there are times when it looks fantastic. The moment when he talks to Ewa through the tree, and Natiri walks up behind him to to see him laying himself bare and being vulnerable, which Sam Worthington is actually good at. His his face and his body look very earnest, and it just that is the best moment of uh, the digital makeup, just making him look like you can see the version of Jake through this avatar in a way that it didn't quite work in almost all the previous shots. There's another problem actually with the design on this and it's, I I completely understand why they made the choice. I don't know that there is another option they could have taken given the tech they had available to them at the time, 
but it's a major flaw and it contributes to everything feeling like it's a video game. Mm -hmm. Nothing has fur. Yeah. The fur Navi is expensive. You have to animate every individual absolute. strand. The Navi have hair, mm. but none of the animals. The the Navi don't have any fur on their skin, which is fine if that's, that's that works for their design. But you've filled this world with animals that all look like they're made out of very sleek, shiny screensavers. Yeah, it makes it feel like a video game because. At, at a certain point in history, when you were playing video games, everything looked very slick. You know why? Because hair and fur were very, very difficult to do. Also I, the Unreal Engine, which was very popular at the time indeed. for 3D games. I completely understand why, but it does mean everything has that slight air of fakeness about it. Okay, you were going to say something about how the Navi are portrayed and how the story ends. You said save that for later yeah the biggest issue that i have with this is actually something that's kind of come on reflection in later years rather than something that i had a problem with at the time when we first saw this film it did connect with me really quite sharply and i can't say that it's not effective to some degree in how it gets across its points about it's not fair to come and rip out the ground from underneath people who are living somewhere just because you want what they're standing on. Again, broad brushstrokes, but it does communicate the, the fundamental points there. However, with that being the fundamental point of the whole story, it is frustrating as all hell that two of the significant things about this film are that it's celebrated largely not for any story element or any campaigning or information that it managed to convey to a generation that otherwise wouldn't have had that, but for the fact that it's made the most money. That completely undercuts what I really feel like Cameron was trying to get across here. And he's totally bought into that. He's, he's, every time he's talked about the, the sequels and the, the world that he wants to create around it, he seems to have leaned into this bigger, louder, better, higher, further, faster baby. Let's just get this ceiling of billions up as high as we possibly can. There's a reason why they re-released it recently. It was so that they could boot it up past Endgame because it took the top spot. There's a reason why... Also to trial it in China, who yeah, you said didn't absolutely. get it before, and they're a major global market. They are a major global market, and it, it does... It has the benefit that they can kind of reawaken everybody's awareness of it, if not interest in it, before the sequels start coming out. And just prime cinemas a bit more because people are still at the moment staying away because it's it either is or is perceived to be not as safe as they are comfortable with which is absolutely fine and they're hoping on some level that by putting the original out there they can try and encourage people to test the waters and come back out again so that they are First relaxed and ready to go when the sequels start coming out. But again, these are marketing decisions. These are to do with dollar figures, that's all. And again, it just feels like you're shitting on your message, James. What are you playing at? 
And the second thing was that one of the major marketing tie-ins, I mean, in the grand scheme of things, this is pretty small, but it was just, it fundamentally made me go, ugh. One of the major marketing tie-ins that they had when the film came out was with Coca-Cola. They had Coke bottles with 3D, or it was either 3D images or QR codes that you could use to then get to a website with 3D images on your phone. And Coca-Cola are one of the worst companies for going into areas of the world that are cheap to build factories in and buying up land and more importantly access to water that they then cut off from the people who fucking live there. They are literally doing what the film tells people not to do. And it just, again, you're building something that is meant to communicate a really crucial message and then you're kicking the struts out from underneath it. And it just makes everything feel like it's, it, I mean, it wasn't Disney at the time, but it's Disney, I get it, it's corporate, I understand. It's never going to be a pure and ideological message and story. You're not going to reach a, a wide audience if that's the approach that you take. But draw the fucking line somewhere, and hopefully before you get to Coca-Cola. And yes, in case you were wondering, folks, the Avatar toys did turn up in Happy Meals supplied by McDonald's. Another of the most egregious of forest-destroying capitalist scumfuck companies. Indeed. Indeed. And the other problem that I have with it, which is in a narrative sense, is how they wrap up the story of what happens to the colonials at the end of this. Yeah. Well, they sent them home, thus solving the problem problem forever. forever. But what about... Forever. (laughs) Same joke, but it's good. Indeed. But the, the, the creation of this soldier who is a monster and there is never any debate about that and making him the We're talking focus about I'm here. talking about Quaritch because yeah. <laughs> honestly if you look at Jake Sully and those yellow ping pong ball eyes you could be forgiven for thinking get that monster off my screen but, but by having a villain who is so cartoonish and not allowing really much to be done about the other villains of the piece, namely Giovanni Ribisi, who the worst thing that happens to him is he just gets a mask put on him and sent back in the ship like everyone else, in spite of the fact that he is the one who represents the company in all of this. But when you make the villain so isolated in his cruelty, and you make him the only focus of what needs to be taken down here, when it's all about just stopping the violence and not dealing with the overarching system that has initiated and instigated all of this in the first place, then what you are presenting audiences with is, as long as you're not this guy, you're fine. As long as you're not this guy. It's what the Oscar winners do with racism. They make a horrendous stereotype in the prestigious film who is horrible racist. They may also go, oh, hey, well, he's a horrible racist, but he is still a person underneath. I don't think we should hold everything against him. Even racists are people too. But they, they have someone be a horrendous cartoon 
so that the Academy can go, well, that's definitely not me, and I'm applauding this film, so I must be off the hook. Mm. Yeah, it, it allows people to observe what's happening and not really apply much in the way of reflection on who they are and how they live because they are so disconnected from this figure of hatred. Also, the end of Aliens. Ripley is tricked by the company to going back to investigate what they've effectively set up as a shake-and-bake colony with xenomorphs. They deliberately set people down there to see if they might hatch some aliens and then bring them back. Ripley blows the whole facility sky high. It was going to go it was going to go like that anyway because of the firing off the rounds underneath the uh, reactor. But as a result of their greed, they destroy the thing, their nest egg, the thing they were hoping to make huge amounts of money from. So Ripley helps to prevent, and, and she fights at every step of the way to not bring back an alien. Mm. They, they nuke it from orbit, only way to be sure, or it is already pre-nuked for them. And that's a satisfying, and now we're going home and fuck the company. Like, humanity wins through. Emotional engagement wins through. Family wins through as opposed to the cold-blooded factory line represented by the Queen and the connection between humans while Burke gets taken away by an alien and chest-bursted presumably off-camera because he was a scumfuck who only cared about his precious money and was absolutely prepared to kill all the Marines and a child and Ripley in order to get that uh, specimen. In this the bad people come to Pandora and then show just how bad they are, and the good person who came with the bad people decides that the good people are good. They are good. There's there's no dispute there. And then just gets to stay with them. And the bad people get sent away, thus solving the problem forever. It's a different scenario to Pandora being destroyed would be a, a, a catastrophe and a tragedy of beyond imagination proportions. But... Cameron himself said, we can't all go and live with the Combine tribe and, and effectively live as uh, Paleolithic people. We don't have the practice, our bodies aren't up to it, our minds aren't up to it. We need, like, we are digital natives ourselves. A vast proportion of us have been trained to be cubicle mice. Stick me on my own in the middle of a wet forest, I'd be crying in minutes. So we have a specific custom lifestyle. So the idea of that the ending of this is that the person you've been inhabiting the body of the whole way through does get to do that, doesn't help us in terms of what we want to do moving forwards. Yeah, the end should have been, and then the humans who wanted to help helped the uh, Navi and kept the fuck away from everywhere that they were told to. The, the solution presented here is if you want to solve the problem of colonialism what you have to do is kick them out before they get a foothold well that's helpful 450 years ago yeah it's it's a it's dicey ground to tread on and the way it's trodden also bothered me this one time when jake sully gives his big rousing jeff winger speech to uh, the clan after so many of their uh, leaders and guides have already fallen in battle. He says very specifically, they can't take this from us, this is our land. And they all cheer at him. These invaders have come in to try and take our stuff, let's go and kill them. Mm. That is a very right-wing way of approaching this. Rather than cheering, as far as I understand, the Navi should have gone, um, 
We we don't own this land. Mm. We're protecting Pandora this and Aoa, but it's not. We're, we're not fighting over territory. It's yeah. not our land. It's the, the the world has become unbalanced, and we're going to try to rebalance it. Like even if he had made that mistake and then been, uh, you know, had it readjusted, and him go, yeah, you know what? You're right. You're absolutely right. It's not our land, but we must defend it anyway, as the people who will take care of it. Mm. Something to the effect of understanding that owning this planet is not something anyone can do, no matter the legal fucking red tape. He does kind of make that mistake earlier on and gets corrected, and then the film goes back on itself. Do you mean when he says Aowa could really use a hand and, and uh, Natiri says, Aowa doesn't take sides, and it's like, I feel like Aowa would take side against the capitalist scumfucks who've come here to rape her. Mm. But it, but it's the the point there is that this is about keeping the balance. But then all the jungle animals get turned against them at the end anyway. Yeah, because they were hurt. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So in the grand scheme of Cameron films, this is actually lower down the list than a lot of other ones for me. The two Terminators and Aliens are right at the top, with the newly minted Titanic sitting pretty in the S category. Underneath that. Surprisingly true lies, because I was just thinking about what each film does, and I'm still really engaged in true lies. There is some fucking dodgy shit regarding Islamic people in that film. But the actual, the comedy really works, the action is great fun, and Helen's journey is something that I enjoyed seeing. It felt like she was redefining herself. Under that, we've got Avatar, because while there are tone problems in True Lies, there are some real issues with this film in terms of what is actually being said. Because if you give, have already given up appealing to uh, the left because they're already totally on side, and the only way you could appeal to the right would be to say, your backyard is part of the earth. If they're going to drill for oil in Alaska, they're technically drilling in your backyard. Are we gonna let these outsiders do that to us? No! Underneath that, we've got The Abyss, which I actually feel it has, in, in the theatrical edition in particular, has very confusing story beats with the uh, NTI's intentions taken out. And there is this massive middle section where there is so much waiting going on. And it dragged for me a lot more than Avatar ever does. And then underneath that, Piranha 2 The Spawning, which is barely a movie. But still, the fact that four of the seven major motion pictures and one not major motion picture are in the S category speaks very highly of Cameron's not only abilities to make a fantastic film, but I can see the influences of all four of those in my own work. Honestly, I'm seeing a very specific quality that those first four have mm -hmm. that the others are a bit lacking in. And that is a really strong, central female performance. Yeah. That's why uh, uh, True Lies is way high up, mm. because uh, Helen's story sort of takes the foreground and Harry slips into yeah. the back. The only thing that drops it down a bit is the fact that there, are, there isn't enough of that. There There's isn't too enough. much of the other stuff. And also, the, the whole the attitude to the, the spy game is dated as fuck. Mm. I don't dislike Avatar. I feel like it could fall apart with too many bad sequels. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And Cameron I, hasn't directed a bad sequel yet. So. And the, the evidence would suggest that the overall movement that it was 
contributing to, which is an expansion really of the, the 90s. We really need to teach kids to recycle and to do those little movements and motions and make those choices and decisions that are going to protect their own future rather than keep shitting on it like everybody else is. We're getting there. We are definitely getting there with the younger generation. Maybe not with us, but with the with our kids. Their attitude towards it is very much, this is now acutely urgent and real for us. And they're far more determined to try and achieve something and do something about it than the generations that came before. It's impossible for us to know how much of an influence, a positive influence, this had. Absolutely. But the fact that this new generation are more conscious suggests it did filter down in some capacity. There were two more things that Cameron said that really struck an, a chord for me. One is, um, again, he was explaining to the people of uh, South, uh, South America that he'd come to visit and, and talk with about the dam. Uh, when people want to understand one another, they will even with a language barrier. They will fight through that and actually get what needs to be said said. When people don't want to understand one another, they won't, even if they speak the same language. This is how America is at its own throat. This is how England is at its own throat. We fundamentally, it is very, very difficult to get someone to understand and take on board information that runs counter to their aims because it's devastating to my case. Mm -hmm. And the other thing he mentioned was you don't have to be hopeful, you just have to stay committed. He was talking about uh, being able to actually fix the world and, and move forwards in a way that actually undoes some of the problematic behaviors that we, uh, go, we, we become dependent on. Uh, but the idea of not having to be hopeful, that was, that knocked me for six. That's what made me wonder more than ever about where his politics actually lie. And I would imagine they fluctuate throughout his life, but that largely his heart's in the right place. Even if sometimes he can't express himself unless it's through anger. There's toxic male shit in this as well. The, uh, uh, the soldiers or the security or the Paul Blarts, when they start stomping around the place and playing at being jungle infantry, there's this one guy who keeps, uh, he's like this prison rapist looking guy uh, who's like, get some, get some. He's, he's saying that while he's firing out of the gunship and that is almost a direct parallel and quote from some, this crazy guy in full metal jacket who's shooting unarmed Vietnamese uh, farmers from this helicopter. Get some means one of two things or sometimes both at the same time. It means fuck someone or kill someone. That's all it means. It's the sort of shit that gets handed down by toxic fucking coaches, toxic fucking fathers, toxic fucking brothers, toxic fucking any older guy who tries to force you to define yourself by whom you can conquer. So this feels less like Vietnam, like I said, and more like the genocide of the native populations of North and South America and Canada by the British and the Spanish and the newly self-appointed white American settlers. It is a what-if scenario 
of what if we can re-explore this and maybe have a happier outcome that draws on enough direct history to feel all too believable. And it's one of the key reasons that we need to fix the way we live with our planet long before venturing out to new ones, or we will absolutely repeat the same dismally predictable, aggressive, greedy moves of our bloody past. School of Movies is funded by Patreon, and our $15 sponsors get credit every episode, so thank you too. Aaron Lecluse, Abel Savard, Angus Lee, Benjamin Hoffer, Brian Novak, Cassandra Newman, Chris Finnick, Christopher Wolfe, Kieran Dashler, Connor Kennedy, Dan Mayer, Daniel Salguero, Dan Hepner, Dave Hickman, David Sheely, Duran Barnett, Finbar Nicole, Frankie Punzi, Greg Downing, Jameis Enright, Jesse Ferguson, Joe Crow, Joel Robinson, Johan Clayson, Joe G, Josh Waster, Kat Esman, Kevin Vahey, Lorraine Chisholm, Marty Huey, Matthew A. Siebert, Matthew Webb, Michael Hasco, Robbie Crow, Sarah Montgomery, Tim Rosensky, Timothy Green, Toby Jungius, Tom Painter, Trey Contreras, and Valencia Burns. So when we come back, we will have a bunch of Matrix-related shows for you. We are going to re-release our 2019 original take on the first Matrix film, which was one of our best, and definitely worth a revisit, followed by brand new shows on Reloaded, Revolutions, and 2021's Matrix Resurrections. And we have different takes on all of them, because we now have fresh perspective on films two and three in particular, kind of like the way We Need to Talk About Anakin was a whole show about reassessing the prequels in the wake of The Last Jedi. I have a feeling it will be almost exactly as contentious. And also, The Matrix is maybe the only other thing that Avatar compares itself with uh, in terms of a sudden phenomena that comes out of nowhere and everyone cares about briefly and brightly and then just kind of slips away for a long, long time before coming back, emerging from a chrysalis. So we'll see, I guess. 
And let's not forget we will also be talking about Hawkeye as we pave the way for our 2022 commissions season. Until then, I've been Alex Shaw. I've been Sharon Shaw. And school's out.
See you. 